if you want to be successful, I think you need to build relationships with your stakeholders. Who are the key stakeholders in your work? How do you show up and do excellent work every day? How do you get clarity on what you need so that you can deliver what is being asked of you? Welcome to the Resilient Faith at Work podcast, where you will find and apply God's wisdom to your work. I'm Dr. Chip Roper, and I'm joined by Ken Kennard and Sarah Evers. We aim to inspire, challenge, and equip you to follow Jesus in the vocational dimension of your life. As we begin this episode, I want to thank our generous donors who make this podcast possible. We are grateful for your support. VOCA funders sign up to change lives by changing work. And if you like this content and want to partner with us to reach more workers, invest in VOCA. Just go to vocacenter.org give and join us today. But I wanted to talk about pickleball winning and rules, best practices for playing pickleball with your spouse. Mm. Sarah, you haven't played yet, right? I have not. I have not been. Are you planning to now that your feet are uh, have been re-engineered? Yeah. Yes, my. I, yeah, I had work done on my feet, so I'm about ready to conquer the world. I've got new sneaks and I'm ready to go. But tell me about pickleball. What am I missing? Ken is the pickleball veteran. Like he was an earlier early adopter on pickleball. Yes, in high school. Court. In high school and college, I played at my friend's private court. We did I didn't not know have it existed. I didn't know yeah. that it existed then. Yeah, and and me and my friends were the only people we knew that even played the sport or knew about the sport. It seemed like a hidden gem back there in the late 80s, early 90s when I was learning to play. We now have a pickleball court in our driveway. I say pickleball court, but that's probably overselling it. It's a net on the driveway with some markers. uh, And we've dreamed about putting some painted lines on the driveway because that would make the court even more valuable. But yes, there's when the weather is nice, there's probably at least one, if not four people uh, out there playing pickleball at my house after school slash work. How can one person play pickleball? Well, my, I have a son that is very dedicated and he takes a big bucket of balls and he goes out there and practices different shots. So he'll work on his backhand for 20 minutes. He'll work on his forehand for 20 minutes. He'll work on his serve or an overhead or he's got, he's got some drills that he's, that he's putting himself through. I, I'm not telling you it's the best pickleball experience because it's much more fun to play with someone else on the other side of the court, at least one other person. But he's that dedicated to it. Uh, I am not, however. So we play almost every weekend, and we play with friends, and we figured out with our friends, Brian and Kathy, that it's best if we split up to be the most evenly matched. So Audrey pairs with Brian, and I pair with Kathy. And we have fairly even contests, and we have less marital tension. That's important. (laughs) So I just, you know, wonder what insights you guys might have on that dynamic. I love it. Because sometimes it, you know, sometimes when we go, it's just the two of us and then we have, we play together and it, I don't know, it doesn't go so well. Yeah. When when I play with my wife, if if it's something that I care about, if I'm really competitive about it, uh, it sometimes does not end well for the marriage. Your marriage doesn't end well. No, the, the, over the, and over again, it ends over and over. The and experience, well. the experience <laughs> does not end well for the marriage. Well, that, you know, when one person cares more than the other, or um, is 
is vocal about their criticism or their frustration or their disappointment, um, but yes, it can, it can be rather difficult, I would imagine. I've never played the sport. Maybe I'm safeguarding my marriage by keeping Mike and me out of the pickleball court. Well, uh, is there anything, Sarah, that you and your husband play competitively, even just like cards or a oh, game? Yes. Uh, board Every games? game we Ping play. Pong. Every game we play. We took um, a game on our one of our anniversary getaways, and um, he kept winning before I even had a chance to to play my hand and um, going to dinner. Like I really had to, sh- I had to shake that off as we walked to dinner that night because I was so frustrated. So yes, we we play cards and we're competitive with it. We do love a good board game. You know, Chip. You know, Chip. I I saw a thing online that there is a brand new area of pickleball courts in Central Park. Is this? I I, I don't. Yeah. I don't it's think it's true. It's open. Okay. And have you played there or not? What do you, do you have an opinion about that? I'm sure as a New Yorker, you have at least one opinion about what the, what's happening there with the pickleball courts in Central Park. Uh, New Yorkers are required to have three opinions about everything. Okay. So, uh, minimum. Um, I might not live up to that. No, we're excited about it. We think it's great. It's um, we're trying to figure out how to use it. It seems complicated on an individual basis. Like, like you couldn't go there with like three friends and play. You have to sign up and be put into this pool. And so there's a little bit of complexity, it seems, with it that they haven't quite uh, worked out. And Audrey's company has already reserved two courts for a company outing, uh, I think, in May sometime. So we will definitely definitely get to play uh and then it's a big you know it's a big hoo-ha with your own courtside drinks and hors d'oeuvres and blah blah so it sounds really fun so we we think it's overall just great and um there's a different side of new yorkers that comes out around pickleball what is that side how would you it's describe a much it? nicer social side in general than what you've we've found in any other kind of just random context where people are meeting so they you know we talk to each other the group that we play with on the upper east side does a happy hour once a month and it's just like it's just a bunch people really seem eager to meet each other uh not just play so it's kind of it's been really it's it's really wild it's a i don't know Maybe revolutionary is too much of a word. I'm so glad. Uh, I'm so, I'm feeling so vindicated, Chip, because I was the one saying uh, pickleball is a sport and you should try it. And it brings people together and it's a lot of fun. And it's it's physical, but it's not like sweaty physical like soccer or, you know, football or something like that. It's not a contact sport, so it can be fun and relational. It's not the most conversational sport. I mean, if you played cards, that would be maybe a little bit more conducive to conversation. Right. But compared to, you know, other sports, uh, I think it has a lot to offer. So I'm so excited that people are, people used to tease me. I'm just telling you my scars. People used to tease me for playing pickleball. Like, what's that? That sounds so silly. Is that for kids? You know, and it took 20 years for it to take off. Well, you said high school, so that's more like 30. Yes. That's like 35 years. I think you need to check your math there. Okay, I'm feeling Mr. young, Kanai. though. Just just playing pickleball makes me feel younger. I don't know if you knew that. It, it takes 10 years off your life. So I'm hearing pickleball as a vehicle for, communi- for community and pickleball as an antidote to isolation when you find your pickleball community. And Ken was ahead of the curve by decades, which means he's really ahead of the curve. But which well is not done, surprising. Ken. You nailed it. 
It isn't surprising. It's well, it's surprising. all in who you know. I happen to have a friend with a court, so there's the, he gets the credit, really. I mean, what, what did I have to do with it? I mean, I'll be honest. I didn't think it was invented until the pandemic. Well, so you showed up about... and you played and you're an, ev- you're an evangelist for it and you took abuse for it. You know? I did. And you paid for all that therapy to get over the scars <laughs> from it. So It's a profit, a pickleball profit. Yeah, the, I feel like I should get a profit. cut. I should get a cut of you the should. pickleball rental fees in New York City or something. Is that what you're saying? Or part yeah, of the pro league. I think so. <laughs> yeah, that Mark Cuban owns or something. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, that was fun. Uh, let's also talk about something else that's fun, which is dilemmas people are facing at work. And they're fun because when, we, when we're honest and clear about what our challenges are, we have a huge opportunity to grow and move the needle both in our effectiveness and our joy at work. And that's what we're talking about here on the Resilient Faith at Work podcast. And we're working through our research uh, from 20, our 2023 report on the dilemmas that people face at work. And in our last episode, we talked a bit about people not enjoying their work or feeling motivated. That was dilemma number six, what to do about that. And today we're in dilemma number five, and it's the hiring and staffing challenge. And over, over, not over, exactly 20% of our survey respondents selected this as a significant issue for them. Um, it, was, it was actually a bit higher, it trended number three for millennials and young Gen Xers who actually make up the bulk of the workforce. Uh, they're over 80% of the people in, in the workforce. They're struggling with issues and challenges related to, to st- hiring and staffing. And, um, Gen Z doesn't care about this, so it didn't. It just didn't. It didn't impact them. They didn't. They, it didn't register on theirs. And as we think about uh, this result compared to last year, um, we didn't see this last year. Um, last year, the big sort of tactical work question was: Should I work from home or should I return to the office? So I just I, two highlights there. So it's it's this is one of the reasons why we do our research every year because things change and. Uh, there's a dynamic that shifted uh, from that work from home RTO to to dealing with the staffing challenge. Obviously, we, we've talked about before in our podcast how many people changed jobs, millions and millions of people over the last uh, 18 months to 24 months. And so that creates a lot of churn, that creates a lot of chaos. And it's also made it, some places it's harder to find good people, other places it's harder it's just hard because you got a lot of new people and it takes a long time to kind of get them up to speed. Um, the second thing I just, I just want to say is that in, in the, the space that we find ourselves in, so we're trying to connect God's wisdom to work, sometimes that's called faith and work, the faith and work movement. There's a lot of discussion and a lot of great and helpful discussion about the fact that God created our work, created us to work. Work, work is marred by the fall, but it's still a good thing uh, fundamentally. And so there's a lot to talk about theology, and there's a lot of highlights on different things. And, and one of the things that we love to con- contribute to this whole broader conversation is the fact that work is still hard, and uh, people are still wrestling with very practical challenges. And that, that, that God has something to say about those things as well, not just sort of the grander and aspirational sides of faith and work. So it, it's good to, th- good to throw this in here. Um, Ken and Sarah, what do you think? I mean, what are you guys seeing on the landscape when it comes to the hiring and staffing challenges, the churn that people are dealing with in the workforce, what's that, what's that look like from your respective Zoom screens slash desks? 
Well, what I'm seeing, um, I think this is where all the churn and change that has happened is now sort of settling in. The dust is clearing. We had uh, 71.6 million people who separated from their jobs between April 2021 and April 2022. 71.6 million people who separated from their jobs. That's a staggering amount of people. The average was like just under 4 million a month. Um, and around November of 21, it was 4.5 million. So like everyone knew somebody who was leaving a job. And if you didn't know somebody who was leaving a job, then you knew somebody who knew somebody who was leaving a job, right? The odds were there was just so much churn. Um, and now the dust is settling and people are really struggling with feeling, finding their place in their organization. They're giving up too soon. They're quitting within the first uh, 90 days. Uh, about a third of new hires, 30% of new hires quit within the first 90 days. Uh, and we, we talked in the last episode and about dilemma six of people not feeling motivated or enjoying the work that they do, that um, there were three different studies done that all indicated that about 80% of people who changed jobs regretted it. Um, there were, I read three different studies that um, had that same number, 80%. So there's been a lot of change. There's been a lot of churn. Um, and, and when you've got that much change, you're losing institutional knowledge. Um, and then you have to build or rebuild institutional knowledge. And so things are just kind of slowing down. And that means teams are having to pick up the slack and other people's work being redistributed. And, and, and you finally hire somebody for a job, but it takes a little bit of time for them to get up to speed. So there's, you know, three to six months, um, three to 12 months to get up to speed. It's, if you give up too soon, you, you never hit your stride. So I, there are some, some issues I'm hearing about. Yeah, and I think about the loss of productivity. Um, you know, I was never the most productive in my work in the first three or six months, right? And if that's happening on such a big scale, then our economy is less productive. It's not just a person or a team. I'm also thinking about the opportunity that that, that represents, yeah. um, because <clears throat> when a when a team is deconstructed and reformed, right? You're talking about getting new people on the team, old people leaving. There is some freshness to that. There is some energy. There is some opportunity to maybe maybe we can build the team differently this time. Maybe we can build it better. Maybe this is a good time to do some uh, team building or some you know training or some bring in some consultants or do something where we can do it better this time and poised be poised for better future growth and put some systems in place that can make us a better team next year than we than we even were last year or two years ago. Yeah, this is hitting me. I'm thinking of several different things. So one is that picking the people that you put on your team, if you have influence on that, is super critical. Um, managing your own tasks when there's, you know, we we're, three of us are doing the work of 10 or whatever, like that becomes a huge issue too. So task, task management, prioritization. And a third thing I think is just, which you just, the way you said that, Ken, was just framing this as opportunity, not as a disaster. I think it, there's a mindset shift that's that's in all this stuff. And, and um, there's a book by the founders of Netflix um, called Break All the Rules, I think. And uh, they talked about how they discovered, they had to lay some people off in a downturn. And they, the best they could, they picked the least productive people to lay off. And they found that, like their productivity just went up exponentially 
when they actually let people go. And so they came up with this rule. They think like a high performer is eight times more productive than an average performer. Mm. And so I think that using using the kind of people are leaving, people are changing as a way to figure out who your who your your high performers are, and then do everything you can to keep them really happy. If you're in a leadership role, I think that's a that's a key thing. And and actually not to worry about like we just had a client they let some people go and they didn't see any difference in productivity. And they're like, ooh, ouch! Like we we should have done that sooner. So some of this, some of this, and and things are flipping, by the way. Just to like, you know, Sarah, you talked about all the voluntary quits. Uh, well, there's a lot of involuntary quits happening mm-hmm. uh, in the first quarter of 2023 and leading into it, mostly by bigger companies and mostly in tech. But um, and there's everybody's cost is being more cost conscious now, so they're they're trying to take people off the roster. So there's an intentional staffing churn and change but if you're anyway if you're in that hiring piece of this equation even though it's harder to get great talent or people are saying it's harder to get, it's still important to be picky and truly get great talent i think that's a that's a thread in this and then we have those other two ideas of it's a time to shine it's not the end it's not a disaster and task management um what do you guys think about those well i would definitely i, I the, the time to shine i think it's a great motto to take on, that this is your time to shine. Uh, if you want to be successful, I think you need to build relationships with your stakeholders. Who are the key stakeholders in your work? How do you show up and do excellent work every day? How do you get clarity on what you need so that you can deliver what is being asked of you? And then bring your um, bring your expertise and do more <laughs> if, there's, if there's time. I mean, this really is the opportunity to shine. So how will you stand out and do excellent work? How will you show up every day and help your team? I mean, that's how you, that's how you succeed and shine. Yeah, and you succeed and shine when you align what you're doing with the goals of your manager or the organization. So if the organization yeah. is having trouble keeping people, what can you do to help keep people there and show them and encourage them and, and give them more interesting work or more influence or, or what they need? Um, if, if the organization is having trouble finding good people, what can you do to be on the solution side of that, right? To recruit people and recruit good people, you know, be a part of that solution. So I think that resourceful mindset about how you can be a solution provider, it's not just, did I do my job well? It's like, what is the larger organization struggling with and how can I be contributing to that? And if you don't know, hey, that's a great conversation to have. You know, a one-on-one with your supervisor where you say, hey, I'm just curious, what, what challenges do you see us having and I'm just wanting to contribute to that. What, what, who doesn't want to hear that conversation as a manager? Well, you bring up such a great yeah, I, point there. Ahead, Sorry. Well, I was just thinking that we want businesses hire people to solve problems for them. When things are tough, it's easy for people to go negative. And so then everybody starts highlighting all the problems that are happening. But again, the opportunity to shine is to not just say, here are the problems and complain about them, but to say, I've identified a problem and here's what I think we should do about it, right? Coming with solutions ready to contribute, that is another way to set yourself apart during this, this season of difficult times with staffing and building out teams. Yeah, I have a friend who's like done, he did really well. He retired a year ago and, uh, you know, I just look up to him and I think, you know, he's probably had this fairy tale career kind of thing, right place, right time. And it's kind of true. He was at the right place at the right time, but and since he retired, he wrote a book about his life and his career. And over and over again, 
he would get a new job and he would by the time he got there everybody else had moved on like all the major players all the legacy players he was like the last person standing multiple times in his career and that's really actually what god used to set him up for leadership and influence and accelerated learning and like like over and over again it's just really funny and ironic it's not what you think yeah, that we, we've been too shaped by our limited experience and movies and fi- like on what like this really looks like and a lot of time you know like when they make a move and they hire another person a lot of people move like they all take a signal it doesn't have it it's it ha- this has happened for dec- decades and decades it's not something that's just happening now and you know and i think there's some spiritual biblical wisdom for us here to that can feed and anchor this mindset shift that this is a time to shine this is an opportunity it's not a time to necessarily to run for the exit um or to despair and mm-hmm. you know the in general well there's actually i don't know if this is encouraging or not but this is a proverb that says if you faint in the day of adversity your strength is small so i don't know if that's the ancient ver- hebrew version of suck it up buttercup but i i think it's 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 just like especially if as you as you as you go along like do you want your strength to be small do you do you want to be that person that kind of buckles under the pressure or do you want to be the kind of person that shows up uh when things are challenging or fluid um and 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 i think most of us want to be the latter and then there's just this promise that we see echoed a number of different ways in scripture that uh, difficulty makes us stronger and it grows our, it grows us to be the kind of people with capacity. Um, Romans 5 talks about suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And I, one of the things I struggle with that, guys, is that I think of, when I think of face difficulty, I always think of it as something I just want to get through so I can get back to things being nice. And I don't really actually think that that's what the biblical wisdom is. I think the biblical wisdom is that you go through difficulty and God make, gives you more capacity to handle difficulty. Like mm-hmm. it's, you get a break usually, but it's the break is not so that you can like go on a permanent retirement cruise. The break is be, so that you're ready for something that's more complex, more challenging, more responsibility, more people depending on you. And so, you know, we, we talked about this about Dilemma 6 in our last episode, but it's like, it's preparing you for more. And so there, but there are these biblical promises about the value add of persevering through difficulty and how God shapes us in it that prepares us for more that can sort of fuel, I think, and even anchor that mindset that this is, this is a divine opportunity. Even just the idea of, of providence uh, that, you know, we, there's actually a lot of details in our lives we don't control. You know, you end up in this place, people made decisions about what they were going to do that you could not control or maybe didn't even, inf- and even know about. And so you just sort of end up here kind of holding the bag, so to speak. Well, that's like we would say that's a God thing. God, God knew that. And uh, he's got something for you in it. Well, to your point, I, I think that whole thing is that we need to ask God for his perspective and for his wisdom and his insight on it. Um, in James 1, it says, Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. And I remember a season of work in my 20s where I audaciously and expectantly prayed about every aspect of my job. I was thinking about I had a a new move. I had a new team I was supposed to 
oversee and I had undefined job expectations. So I prayed all the time, all throughout the day, asking God for wisdom about it. And I saw God show up every day. And I might, this common refrain kept coming where I would say, I just prayed about that. Or God would make a divine connection. There would be um, a specific delivery on time or something would happen. I'm like, oh my gosh, I just prayed about that. So I was, I was asking God and begging God to show up. And then I, I saw him do it. He came through for me. So there's a, there's a real opportunity for us to take these difficult times when there's um, hiring and staffing challenges or shortages on our team to, to ask God for his perspective and his insight and his wisdom and his solutions. Yeah, and on a practical level, I was just thinking about being on a team where there's been a lot of turnover, there's staffing challenges, productivity is lower. Well, guess what? Maybe we don't have the money for bonuses this year. Maybe things aren't as going as well and we can't afford some of the perks. You know, I, I just talked to a client who said, you know, this has been a tough year for us and I, I'm just not able to spend like I normally would on some of the things that our company can spend on. And <clears throat> even that is an opportunity. How can we be more efficient? How can I show as an employee that I'm conscious of that and looking to save money and not just complaining and, ah, oh, why can't we all have the cool stuff, you know? Um, and there's wisdom in serving in a scenario where, okay, if this is part of the reality, how can I, how can I contribute instead of, um, you know, just getting down and, and where, and where is God going to provide? You know, if God really provides for us, like to your point, Sarah, if you're praying about that, where's God going to show up? Expect and look for him to show up, even in times where maybe money isn't the big thing that's available, but maybe there's something else that's an opportunity, a relationship, or the way to get into a new market, or um, the way to benefit when other people have dropped the ball. That's good. That's really good. It's a different, it's a shift that's required, and then we need to feed it. Um, you know, as you think about, as we think about this, so like there's the big idea that it's, a, it's an opportunity, it's time to shine, and then there's the practical reality that if you're in an understaffed team, you're going to have more to do than you can do. Mm. What do you What do you do with that? <laughs> that sounds like one of the other dilemmas. You're stressed out. <laughs> you're, you know, you guys just, you're just well, like, it bleeds oh. into it for sure. There's yeah. no question about it. Yeah. Well, I think communication, good communication, becomes your BFF or it becomes your go-to. Right? Talking with your supervisor, talking with your team about you know. We can't do everything, so what are we going to do and what can we do well? What, is the, what are the priorities? What are the strategic um, advances that we can do if we can't do anything? We don't have the people or the, the team to get it all done. So I think the number one issue is, is communicating with your, your team and your team lead. I think it's really important. And one of the, I don't, I don't remember where we discovered this. I think one of, uh, I think one of our clients said it, they, they were, co they were, advising someone to agitate for agitate for clarity that's the phrase they used agitate for clarity yeah. and i think that it's all part of the discipline of leading up and it's mm -hmm. something we find we have to we have to push clients to do a lot is to keep a good open clear communication channel with their their upline their supervisor keep that supervisor in in touch with all the things they're juggling Enlist that supervisor's counsel and and coaching in terms of prioritization, you know, in terms of what's the most efficient ways to do certain things. And it just seems sometimes that we 
we take it all on ourselves and we don't, I don't know, we make it harder on ourselves than we need to. We don't, we don't really <laughs> asking like what's really expected or, Hey, I've got these 10 things to do. I can't do them all today. So what's, how should I prioritize it? We don't, it just seems like people sort of freeze or feel like there's something wrong with initiating that kind of conversation. So let's just talk about this for a minute. How do you do it? How, how do you get your head around what you need to do first? How do you figure out like when there's 50 things you could do today? Yeah. And I, so how do you figure out which, which three or four you're going to actually get done? Here's, here's the way I, I think I, I've sort of started to handle this. I handle it on three different levels, actually. So there's the micro level, which is I wake up in the morning and I look at my schedule and I say, what am I going to do today? And I'm looking through that list. I'm actually praying through that list on my best days. And I'm anticipating how God's going to show up and what I need and what I, how I can prepare and so on. Then there's the weekly version of that, which is, okay, it's a new week. Let's look at the week as a whole. Where's my energy going to be needed? Where are my priorities for that week? What's the most important thing that I make sure gets done this week? Where are the pressure points going to be and how I, can I anticipate that? And then there's kind of like every three to six months, maybe once a year where I'm doing the bigger picture. Like, is this going in the larger direction strategically that we need to go or that I need to go? Um, and that's when it's time for a retreat because I need, in order to ask those big questions, I usually need to concentrate and be detached and sort of, you know, I can't do that in 20 minutes. Um, I, I might need a day or two to kind of do that kind of reflecting. And that's part of the seasonal reflecting and uh, part of the rhythm. And I think when I see all three of those working, um, there's real resilience there, right? The, the, the interruptions and the unexpected things don't quite rock me as much. Uh, and for me, I have a, I have a similar, similar habit where I start each day with just a couple of minutes getting out of my head all the things that I could do so then I don't have to feel like I'm maintaining them. So I put them in my reminder system or I put them on a piece of paper on a checklist put them in my bullet journal. Exactly, Ken's showing us his clipboard full of to-dos. So I get those out in my head. I look at my schedule for the day and the week and figure out um, which ones are most significant and what are, the, what are the big rocks that have to be done and when am I going to do them. And then I have a short reflection time, five to 10 minutes before I leave my desk and shut everything down to look at what did I complete and did I do busy work or did I do strategic work? Um, was I busy or was I strategic? And then, I, then I, I seed my planning for the next day, for the next morning, with what are the one or two things that I think really need to happen tomorrow to move forward. Um, and so I combine that with looking at my calendars um, and with my tasks and my priorities and uh, what are my, my most significant projects or clients that I'm moving forward. And that really helps. That That's five really or good. ten minutes sandwiching the day with that, that, that really helps. I think what both of you are saying is, is a key thing for listeners to realize, and that is that when you, as your level of responsibility increases, you have to spend time organizing yourself, mm -hmm. which actually initially doesn't feel productive, but you're not going to be productive without it. And Sarah, you love to say this, you got to go slow to go fast. And I think yeah. this is a perfect example of that, where you've got to go slow to go fast. I, I think the other thing, and Ken, you, you talked about it with your, even on an annual basis, is just thinking through what really matters. And, and that's both personal and tactical. Uh, like whatever your job is, you know, there's probably three, only three or four things that really matter in terms of keeping the lights on, keeping, uh, keeping people 
organized, going the same direction, keeping revenue coming in, that kind of thing. And I think, you know, and I'll, I'll just share an example. Um, an email from our biggest client is a lot more important than an email from the, our accountant that we need to get our expense reports in. Like if the expense reports are late, and they often are, <laughs> it really doesn't matter as much as keeping that those significant clients happy, right? So it just, but having some clarity about, well, what, like what really, what really contributes to our survival? Like what justifies our existence? What, what, what are the, if we don't do this, like then we might as well not even be doing anything kinds of things. I, for me, that's really helpful to understand a little bit in terms of, you know, it's just a clarification of what's, what's really, what really matters. And, you know, sometimes it's called the Eisenhower matrix. Um, Stephen Covey used it too, and do important things first. So it's the two by two, every, every, everything deserves a two by two, but it's this idea that some things are, yeah, it's my love language. Some things are urgent. Some things aren't, some things are actually important. Some things aren't. And you, you know, you net all that out and you realize I need to focus. I should only be doing things that are important. And, um, the important urgent have to be done now. The important urgent, ha uh, the important non-urgent also have to be done. That we got to fit those things in. That's that high level planning, prioritization, that kind of things. You know, if it's not urgent or important and uh, it's really just, we're just wasting our time. And, um, and, and so we have to deal with this, uh, especially if you're thrown into the mix in this understaffed environment where you've got some new people who don't really know. And I mean, it's gonna, you're surfing chaos a little bit. and spending time to stay anchored and focused and first discern what's really important and then map your own schedule and task completion to that is is absolutely essential well and what when you're in that tight staffing situation then it feels like you're only living out of that urgent quadrant um, and it it feels really hard to get ahead of it and take a breath and i just i just met with a client um, and as we talked he's one month into a new job and he realized that he's got to spend four hours on his weekend just getting through emails so he can get on top of things so that he can get out of urgent. And if um, I, I think being willing to put in that extra effort outside of what's considered the traditional work hours, um, that's, that's going to help you get on top of the urgent so you can live in the important. And for me, I've realized I can't take calls or meetings Monday morning, the first thing Monday morning, that has to be reserved for my think time. The higher up in an organization you go, the more strategic that think time, that planning time, that reflection time becomes. And so I, I just can't take calls uh, on Monday mornings. I've got to plan ahead and think ahead. Yeah. And you know what that makes me think, Sarah, is that you said a higher up in the organization you are. The reason for that <clears throat> is think about how many people are benefiting from or being being adversely affected by your think time or lack of think time, right? And so when you're on That's the ball and when you're really strategic, you know who benefits? Your whole team, like everybody. everybody. So everybody benefits when a leader is really focused and strategic and making good decisions about their priorities. Yeah, absolutely. I you know I, I mentioned um, that reflection practice um, at the end of each day. Well. I, a decade or so ago, I was in a season of work with a new boss and not a lot of clarity on what my expected outcomes were. 
And, um, and she was living out of the urgent, that supervisor. So I got in the habit of every Friday, I'd send her an email saying, these were the things that I worked on this week. Uh, and I invited her feedback on what's strategic. And I also forecasted what I think I would work on the coming week so that she could give me feedback or readjust my priorities. And so when we're in that situation where um, hiring and staffing has made work really difficult and there's extra work and it's spread out and we don't know what to work on, that kind of a habit, sort of letting your supervisor know what you're doing, inviting their feedback, that's one of the ways that you can prioritize communication and get the feedback to make sure you're working on the things that organizationally are most strategic, most significant. That's really good. That's really good. I, I want to, I think we'll, we can wrap up with this. Somebody that uh, Sarah mentioned last time was Brother Lawrence, and um, who wrote this book called The Practice of the Presence of God, which is not a book for priests. Uh, it's a book for everybody as we go about our daily tasks. And he's, he basically, I don't know if he quite says it this way, but this is kind of Chip's synthesis of it, is this, that we can enter into this loop. Uh, uh, and I, I've been incorporating it in my own daily reflection process. And he, he says I, he only prayed for two things, which is probably not true, but he prayed, he definitely prayed for these two things. He prayed for wisdom and grace. He pray, prayed for wisdom to, def, to discern what he needed to do. And that gets into this idea of trying to figure, you know, what is really important? What do I need to do? And he, and he prayed for that, about that every day. And once, once it became, as it became apparent what he needed to do, he prayed for the grace, which is God's help that we don't deserve, prayed for God's strength and power to do it. And he entered into this kind of process where he said, oh, this is what I need to do. God, give me the grace to do it. And then once it's done, you celebrate it, you thank God for it, and you move on. And it's kind of this interesting interesting way to make a spiritual connection with your tasks that you do on a daily basis and to start to celebrate um, I mean, it's great if your team and your boss celebrate the things you get done, but you could start to get into this. You can bake it into your conversation with God. And I've been doing that on a daily basis. It's been really cool to just see how, oh, I needed to get that done. Pray for the strength to do it well. And then thank God that it went well and it's done. And I'm moving on to the next thing. It's been, it's very, very granular. Uh, but it's also very, it's very hope giving and as you do it habitually, you realize, wow, you know, I'm, it seems like I am starting to pick the really important things that really move the needle and because the noodle, needle is moving and, and then it gets you back to a place where you realize God's really involved in your work and he's working, he's working in your work and you're not alone and it's, and you're making progress even though, uh, you know, sometimes the chaos at a surface level seems like it's just as chaotic as, as it ever has been. Yeah, well, great. You, you, so this you call is, it, uh, this, you're gonna you're gonna gonna give us a closing thought, Ken. Well, I was just thinking. You called it granular. You know what else was granular was taking two fish and five loaves and breaking them apart and handing them to the next person. What else was granular was picking up the leftovers and putting it in into a basket. And you might say, well, that's pretty menial work, but the spiritual impact of doing that work was enormous, and we still talk about it to this day. So. I appreciate your challenge there to see the spiritual in the mundane and not to try to discount that God's doing powerful things in the granular details of our day-to-day work. That's great. Well, let's leave it at that. And, um, you know, dilemma five, how do you handle the staffing and hiring challenge? You look at it as a chance to shine. It's like you're, you're in God's gymnasium. He's making you 
a higher capacity woman or man in your workforce, not just for you, but for everybody else. And it's an opportunity to uh, engage with God in the granular details of your work because he cares and he's going to give you the wisdom you need uh, to find the way forward. Well, this is this episode of Resilient Faith at Work podcast. Next time we're going to we're going to tee up dilemma number four. And uh, dilemma four is bringing, how do I bring redemption uh, to broken places in my company or industry? It's a very, uh, it's, it's about imagining and uh, delivering on it and being an influence and impact, having kingdom impact at work. So we're excited to imp- unpack that in our next episode. Hey, thanks for listening. As we close this episode, I'm going to use the H word, help. First, help us help you. Do you want to grow in your effectiveness as a worker and leader? Are you wondering if you are in the right job or career? Maybe you lead a team and wonder how to make that team better. Go to vocacenter.org consult for an easy scheduling link and book your appointment with one of our great coaches today. We're ready to help you. Second, help us help others. This podcast is brought to you by generous donors who change lives by changing work through their investment at VOCA. If you like this content and want to partner with us to reach more workers, donate to VOCA. Go to vocacenter.org slash give and begin your partnership today. We'll see you next time on the VOCA podcast where we help you build resilient faith at work.